The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to From the Pulpit on the Restoration Radio Network. This show airs weekly on Thursday nights and is a presentation of the most informative sermons, conferences, and lectures from Catholic clergy on critical topics for Roman Catholics to find their way and to hold their faith during this horrendous crisis, the modernist heresy, which permeates the Church and the world at every level. From the Pulpit is underwritten by True Restoration Press and True Restoration Media, with streaming videos and membership subscriptions available at truerestoration.org. And while a portion of the operating costs of this program are underwritten by True Restoration Press, we are truly dependent upon listener donations for the continued success of these broadcasts. Restoration radio programs, including this one, are available on the iTunes Store and are syndicated on TuneIn and Stitcher. You can follow the work of True Restoration at truerestoration.blogspot.com, on our Facebook page, and our recently added daily news feed, which is linked on the blog homepage. On tonight's broadcast, we will continue a series of sermons on Vatican II presented by His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. This series began on August the 8th and is airing over a five-week time span. It will take us right to the root of the problem, which without question has caused the near-complete destruction of everything once recognizable as the Roman Catholic Church, her institutions, her liturgy, her doctrine, and her disciplines, the Second Vatican Council. If you missed the first two parts of this series, you may listen to them on demand at the Restoration Radio homepage by clicking the Vatican II series Part 1 link. We will air two sermons per week in back-to-back format so that our listeners may digest and ponder the material given each week. Let us now join Bishop Sanborn as he continues by explaining the heresy of ecumenism and in the second half of the program, the liturgical changes of Vatican II. In this, the third of the sermons concerning the errors of Vatican II, I would like to speak to you about ecumenism. There is no better day to speak about these things than on this day, which is the feast of St. Pius X, who was an ardent foe of modernism. I said to you last week that modernism is based entirely on the interior religious experience. Revelation in that system does not come to us from God through the church in her infallible teaching, but rather revelation is from God's manifestation to himself to each individual. It's an interior experience. Therefore, dogmas are not a fixed and unchangeable set of truths to which all men must adhere under pain of excommunication. That's the Catholic system. They are, they are truths revealed by God, revealed from the throne of God in Revelation and proposed by the church infallibly. 
And to deny one of these dogmas is to deny the very veracity of God himself. And so a single denial of, of a dogma makes you a heretic and puts you outside the church automatically. That's the Catholic system. Rather, in the modernist system, these dogmas are mere expressions of our personal religious experience and are true for us, but are not necessarily true for someone else. They are subject to change, just as our religious experience is subject to change. Differences in dogma, therefore, do not pose a serious problem for the modernist. For the Catholic, it is everything, as I have said. It is the whole faith. Your ticket to the church is your profession of the whole set of Catholic dogmas. But for the modernist, dogmas are able to be changed and negotiated, or in any case, they are not a serious stumbling block to religious unity. Now, the ecumenical movement goes back to the 18th century. It's as old as George Washington. Immanuel Kant, a Prussian philosopher who was the founder of modernism, said that all religion is based on feeling. He was the first one who detached religion from anything objective and said it's all interior feeling. Dogmas are meaningless since they talk about things that are not personal experience. And he said that the greatest day for religion will be when all of them break down their differences and become one great religion. In the 19th century, these ideas flourished among the Protestants. They abandoned the idea that the Bible was the word of God and made the Bible a completely human production. And they abandoned, therefore, their one source of revelation and dogma, their one source of objectivity and connection with God in that sense, and that is to regard at least sacred scripture as the word of God. And thus they rendered their own dogmas meaningless because they had no basis in objectivity. They were all just feeling. In the 1850s, there was a society established in... England called the Society for Christian Unity. And it had the express purpose of bringing about unity among Christians. And it said that the Church of Christ consisted of three branches, the one being the Church of England, the other the Greek Orthodox, and the other the Roman Catholic. That originally there was but one trunk. But because of disputes, they would say, owing to the tyrannical rule of popes, this trunk split up into different branches. So it's all the same tree, all the branches are valid in that sense, but they, they are nevertheless separate communions with separate governments, separate doctrines. And they appeal to Rome to consider reunion under these terms that whereas there would be differences in dogma and the government of each church, the Church of England versus the Roman Catholic, each would regard each other as a valid branch of the Church of Christ. 
And the church responded with a resounding no. The church said this, there is no opinion which is more at variance with the genuine notion of the Catholic Church. For the Catholic Church is that which, built upon a single rock, rises up into one coherent body and is held together by unity of faith and charity. This same condemnation of the branch theory was included in the schema on the church which was distributed to the Council Fathers at Vatican I, which, however, was never voted upon due to the Franco-Prussian War. But it is very likely that it would have been passed and it manifests the mind of the church. It says, if anyone should say that the true church is not one body in itself, but consists of varied and diverse societies of Christian name and is spread out among them, or that various societies disagreeing among themselves in profession of faith and separated by communion constitute as members or parts the one and universal Church of Christ, let him be anathema. Cardinal Patrizzi, who was head of the Holy Office at the time, responded to these English Protestant ministers, but that Christians and ecclesiastics should pray for Christian unity under the direction of heretics, and what is worse, according to an intention which is radically impregnated and vitiated by heresy, this is absolutely impossible to tolerate. The greatest care must therefore be taken, the Cardinal says, that Catholics, neither under the aspect of piety nor deceived by false opinion, of which we have now here spoken, not join this society or others like it, or in any way favor them, lest, swept away by a false desire for a new Christian unity, they be cut off from that perfect unity which, by the wondrous gift of the grace of God, stands firm on the rock of Peter. But the, ever, but the ecumenical movement nevertheless continued. Protestants organized conferences promoting this false Christian unity and invited Catholics and even non-Catholic clergy, uh, rather Catholic clergy, to participate. But the church always refused. The spread and increasing influence of the movement gave rise to Pope Pius XI's encyclical in 1928 entitled Mortalium Animos, which condemned the ecumenical movement in its very principle and forbade Catholics from participating in it. And it is there, as I quoted to you last week or the week before, in which he said, this is tantamount to the, to the denial of the religion that is revealed by God. And for that reason, we should see ecumenism not as a heresy, but as an apostasy. Nevertheless, like rats gnawing at the hull of the ship, many ecclesiastics in the Catholic Church continued to look forward to a liberal pope who would approve of the ecumenical movement. A good example of this is a person by the name of Dom Baudouin. He was a Benedictine monk who was a fanatic about changing the liturgy. This is in the 1920s and the 1930s. He was an avant-garde liturgist. He was an intimate friend of Roncalli, who became John the Twenty-Third. 
And when Pope Pius XII was becoming ill and they were talking about the new Pope, he called for the election of John XXIII saying that he is capable of calling a council to consecrate ecumenism. And John XXIII was their man. Vatican II's decree on ecumenism was filled with errors and these errors have been confirmed and new ones invented by the heresiarchs Montini and Wojtyla, otherwise Paul VI and John Paul II. There are many errors, but in this amount of time allotted to us, I will enumerate these. The first is that the Catholic Church lacks unity because of the divisions which affect Christianity. This is a heresy. They see the Church of Christ as being this, exactly what the branch theory said it was, a big amalgamation of many different societies which profess to be Christian. Not the Roman Catholic Church under the Roman Pontiff. And they say, therefore, that the Church of Christ lacks unity because it has divisions in it. It has the Greek Orthodox, it has the Protestants, it has the Catholics. That is a heresy. As if our Lord's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, in which he said that the Church should be one as he is one with his Father, as if that is simply a wish or some desire that he expressed. It is heretical. It is against our creed, which we recite. One holy Catholic and apostolic church. The church is one. The second error taught by Vatican II and Montini and Wojtyla is that the Catholic Church cannot give an effective witness to the Gospel for as long as these differences exist. That is to say, she cannot carry out her mission of preaching the Gospel to the whole world, a mission of Christ, because there are heretics and schismatics in the world. And that too is a heresy that there is an imperfect bond of unity among all Christians. This is explicitly condemned by Pope Pius XI and by Pope Pius XII, the one in Mortalium Animos, the other in Mystici Corporis. But these modernists say that because of baptism, all Christians are in a certain way united and that there is a partial communion that exists among these diverse Christian societies and divisions condemned by the church already that the Roman Catholic Church erred and was to blame at least partially for the rifts which took place in the past this is again explicitly condemned by Pope Pius XI and Mortalium Animos yet John Paul II does not cease to go around to every schismatic and heretical group and tell them that the, one of the reasons for the division is the guilt of the Catholic Church. Why are the Greek Orthodox separated from us? Because they don't believe that the Roman Pontiff is the head of the Church. Now, where is the Catholic Church guilty in such a statement? 
And why are the Protestants separated from the Catholic Church? Because they don't believe in the teaching authority of the Church. They don't believe in the real presence of Christ. They don't believe in the Church's teaching concerning justification. It is as if there were a question merely of personalities. It is as if there were merely a feud among a few people at the time of the Reformation or at the time of the schism, the Greek schism. No, these problems persist and the hardness of the Protestant and the schismatic hearts persist. But he excuses himself and he excuses the church in front of the Jews. Everywhere where he can find an, an opportunity to blame the church, he does. In front of the Muslims, he blames the church for having persecuted them. He goes to the American Indians in Canada and, and, and does mea culpa in front of the American Indians who are savages and who ate people and who worship devils. Did mea culpa for having sent the Jesuits to convert them to Catholicism and disturb their culture. That the Roman Catholic Church has been deficient in her formulation of doctrines, and this should be rectified. This is a uh, this is from the document in Vatican II on ecumenism. It mentions that it is possible that the Church has been deficient in her formulation of doctrines. Deficient. That means that there is a fault. That means there's something wrong. Does that mean that there's something wrong with the formulation of transubstantiation? That there's something wrong with the teaching that our Blessed Lady is a virgin? That there's something wrong with the teaching concerning the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass? How do you separate the formulation of the dogma from the dogma itself? What do we believe? Do we believe in transubstantiation or not? Is that a negotiable item? Is that what the council is saying? That again is a blasphemy. It is a heresy against the teaching authority of the Catholic Church. It is a, a heresy against the indefectibility of the Catholic Church. It ruins the very foundations of our faith. For it calls into question the formulation of our dogmas. What is the purpose of a church if it cannot correctly formulate dogma. Why not just be a Protestant and open up your Bible? Another error is that some dogmas are more important than others. This is also from Vatican II, implying that some are non-negotiable, others are negotiable. This too was explicitly condemned by Pope Pius XI in Mortalium Animos. It's as if they took that document of Pope Pius XI, changed the words, and made it into the document on ecumenism. That non-Catholic religions are a means of salvation. This is explicitly stated by the document on ecumenism and also by John Paul II in an official document. Non-Catholic religions are a means of salvation. That is a heresy. It runs directly contrary to the teaching of the church that the Catholic church is the one true church, the one ark of salvation. As Noah was saved in the ark with his family, 
so the church is the single ark of salvation. This is the constant teaching of the Catholic Church. It is a dogma that outside the church there is no salvation, and that means that the unique source of salvation in the world is the Catholic Church because it is the unique Church of Christ. And they also teach that schismatic and heretical bishops have an apostolic mission. Again, wherever he can find a schismatic, a schismatic bishop, whether it's whatever part of the world you can get one, he goes and tells them that you have an apostolic mission to preach the gospel. What does that mean? It means that they have the authority of Christ, that despite the fact that they don't believe in the Immaculate Conception, that they believe in divorce and remarriage, that they don't believe that the Roman Pontiff is the head of the Catholic Church, and that they reject our Holy Creed because it has the, the filioque in it, among many other things, they, although they reject the, the teaching of the Church on purgatory, although they, they reject these dogmas, they nevertheless have a, the power and the mission from Christ to go and teach the gospel. As if they were standing on the, on the mountain in which Christ ascended and Christ said to them, these heretics and schismatics, as much as he said to St. Peter and St. Andrew and St. John, going therefore teach ye all nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you as if he empowered these people, these heretics and schismatics. And this is what the heresiarch Wojtyla goes around telling these people. And not only did he say it to schismatics, who at least have valid orders in most cases, but he goes and tells the Swedish Lutheran bishops that they too have an apostolic mission. The Lutheran bishops, followers of Luther who said that our Lord Jesus Christ committed adultery three times. That they have an apostolic mission to preach the gospel. And they are no more priests than your mailman. Ecumenism has led to abominable practices against the faith. They are too numerous to mention. I will just give you a few of the highlights by way of review. Assisi, in which the golden Buddha was placed upon the tabernacle in a very holy church in Assisi and was incensed and was given homage by strange incantations by a very strangely dressed Buddhist priest. And where the American Indians worshipped the great thumb and where there was also other forms of abominable worship going on the application of cow dung to the forehead of the heresiarch Wojtyla in order that he participate in the, the rites and the mysteries of the Hindus, giving him supposedly a third eye. The drinking of the ritual potion in the Polynesian islands by the same heresiarch, taking part in that awful type of worship. The praise of voodoo snake worshippers in Africa and the participation in their worship by offering a snake something. The praise of the mosque when it was built and 
lamenting the fact that he could not go and, and help inaugurate the mosque, the, the temple, which denies the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ and refers to the Trinity in terms that cannot be repeated. And the visit to the Lutheran Church where he participated in non-Catholic worship, their Sunday service, in which he gave a sermon and in which he used the sermon to pronounce a heresy that the miracles of Christ, of Christ do not prove anything concerning his divine mission. And then his going to the Jewish synagogue where he goes to the successor of the, successor of the Pharisees who crucified our Lord Jesus Christ and rejected his divinity and rejected his royalty and there he says that they are elder brothers in the faith and says that they continue to be the chosen people and so forth. Those are highlights or maybe perhaps low lights of the abominable practices against the faith. And if Moses came down and threw the tablets at the golden calf and slew all those who partook in that awful worship, the golden calf, people who had much less of the gospel preached to them. How much is God outraged to see a man who professes to be his vicar do those things which participate in the works of the devil? Ecumenism has completely defaced our religion. The purpose of the changes introduced at Vatican II and after Vatican II was to prepare the church to be an ecumenical bride. And I think in the next five or ten years she is going to come down the aisle. This ugly woman, this harlot, is going to come down the aisle, this ecumenical church, and they are going to present her as acceptable to be with all of the other religions that the devil has concocted on this earth. Our liturgy has been destroyed. Our canon law has been made heretical, sacrilegious. Our disciplines have become heretical. That is to say, when I say our, I mean those which are purported to be Catholic and proposed to be Catholic. The dogmas have been rendered meaningless. And yes, although they give a certain aspect of orthodoxy from time to time, they publish certain documents, they, they publish a catechism which, to a great extent, is orthodox. The dogmas have nevertheless been rendered meaningless for this lip service given to these orthodox doctrines of the church, the true teaching of the church, is merely that it does not filter down into the everyday life of the Catholic. For as much as Wojtyla says abortion is wrong, a few times that he may say that, there are nuns that believe in abortion and who profess it. For the few times that he says that birth control is wrong, the life of the new church is that you can practice artificial birth control because when you go to the priest, he'll tell you to use your conscience. And for as much as they might speak about the real presence from time to time, the fact is in the new church there is no belief in the, new, in, the, in the real presence, neither in the priests nor in the people. And they treat what purports to be the Blessed Sacrament in a most disgusting manner. At John Paul II's so-called Mass in Colorado for the youth, 
there were bags of hosts being thrown around and being tossed on the floor, supposedly consecrated, just sort of handed from one to the other. At his supposed mass. And he's supposed to be, in the eyes of many, the conservative and the bulwark of the faith. My next sermon will be on the effect of ecumenism on liturgy and discipline and on dogma as well. We have alluded to some of these things here, but in order to do it properly, it needs actually a separate talk. But because this is St. Pius X's feast day and because he is the champion, he is the soldier, the general against modernism, we should end with an appropriate quotation from St. Pius X concerning the modernist heretics. Not only did he speak against modernism and write against modernism, he took efficacious action against modernists. He got them out. He went in with a weeder and went right down to the root and pulled them out. And he had priests and, and even lay people throughout the world reporting to him who were the modernists. And because this offended certain people, particularly those sympathetic to the modernists, one of them being Cardinal Ferrari of Milan, he, they complained to him and he responded. He responded to Cardinal Ferrari by calling the modernists these miserable wretches whom by the command of the Apostle St. John we should refuse even to greet for the Apostle St. John says that we should not greet those who are heretics. And to Bishop Bonomelli, also a well-known soft peddler concerning modernism, he said, there are too many who have turned aside from the truth and in demanding a reform of discipline, dare also to respire to a reform of dogma and harass the church with the sophisms used by its most violent opponents. And to the Archbishop of Cremona, also complaining of the measures against the modernists, he said, I am astonished that you should find excessive the measures taken to confine the flood that threatens to swamp us when the error they are striving to spread is much more deadly than that of Luther because it aims directly at the destruction not only of the church but of Christianity. And to someone else who begged him to go soft on the modernists, he says, kindness is for fools. They want them to be treated with oil, soap and caresses, but they should be beaten with fists. In a duel you don't count or measure the blows you strike as you can. War is not made with charity. It is a struggle, a duel. If our Lord were not terrible, he would not have given an example in this too. See how he treated the Philistines, the sowers of error, the wolves in sheep's clothing, the traitors in the temple. He scourged them with whips. What a prophetic man. He had a vision of the evil that lurked in these modernists' hearts. And he is our great patron today and we salute him today and we pray to him today for his intercession. And may God grant us one day the grace to give us another St. Pius X on the throne of St. Peter. For this is the true remedy to the evils that afflict the world and not the 
spirit of Assisi, as Wojtyla says. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. We hope you're enjoying tonight's episode of From the Pulpit. Please be sure to visit truerestoration.org and click on the True Restoration media link to view our available streaming videos and membership subscriptions for purchase and direct download. These purchases will help us continue to bring you the best content and show guests in the Catholic world today. And now, we present the continuation of tonight's program. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Today I would like to continue with our series of sermons concerning Vatican II, and today's will be concerning the liturgical changes of Vatican II. By way of review, I told you that the the main question is whether the changes of Vatican II are a substantial departure from the Catholic faith or whether they are merely an accidental change. If they are an accidental change, there is but one thing to do, and that is to accept them, and that would make meaningless and even sinful the what we do here. For the Church has always made little changes in the uh, liturgy and in the discipline. It has even made new dogmatic formulas of the same dogmas, but new dogmatic formulas. It has it made them more expressive and said things in a more explicit way. We see that in the Nicene Creed versus the Apostles' Creed. So the Church does make certain changes in that sense. And if these are merely accidental changes, then we have no objection to them and we would be in disobedience. But if, on the other hand, they are substantial changes of the Catholic faith and worship and discipline, then there is but one thing to do, and that is to resist them, to denounce them, and to denounce as phony those who promote them. For the promotion of error cannot coexist with the office of the promotion of truth. And if it is a substantial departure, it sucks out of the Novus Ordo any claim to legitimacy, and it reduces the Novus Ordo to being nothing else but a sect, a sect just like the Mennonites or the Jehovah's Witnesses, just a sect, because they adhere to a false religion. And so it's the real battle line. It's the place where the battle is fought, this question of whether they are accidental changes or substantial changes. And so today we want to look at the liturgical changes to answer that question. The spirit and principle of the liturgical changes of Vatican II are to make the central act of worship acceptable to the Protestants. Ecumenism, as we saw, is a direct result of modernism, since it makes sense to seek the unity of all religions since God is in all men, as they say. And ecumenism demands first that the divisions of Christianity be healed, as they say. For the church, heretically, they say, is split up 
The Church of Christ is divided, and we must first heal the divisions of the Church of Christ before we put together the rest of humanity. Hence, it is necessary for the ecumenists and the modernists to do away in the liturgy with those aspects or doctrines which are displeasing to the Protestants and to insert practices and doctrines which reflect the Protestant theology. Now, first, let us look at the definition of the Mass contained in the New Missal. The Catholic notion of sacrifice, of the sacrifice of the Mass, is that it is the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, to the Father. It is the same as that of Calvary. The only difference is that it is offered in a different manner, that is, in an unbloody manner. And it is offered by an ordained priest who receives the power at his ordination to change the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. Therefore, it is the priest who performs the sacrifice and the people merely assist. The Protestant idea of worship is that the congregation carries on the worship which consists of principally hymn singing. It consists of verbal praise to God. And that's why you have those big and boisterous hymns in Protestant churches because it's to get the people to sing and to, to participate. And the minister is there not as an ordained person with a special power, but he's there essentially as someone to lead and to preside over this worship that the congregation is doing. He does not have a special power. He's something like a graduate. He is a lay person with a degree or some sort of designation to lead the people in prayer and hymn singing and to preach to them. With that in mind, with the difference between Catholic worship and then the Protestant congregational worship, listen to the definition of the Mass contained in the New Missal. Quote, The Lord's Supper, or Mass, is the sacred assembly or congregation of the people of God gathering together, which is redundant, with a priest presiding to celebrate the memorial of the Lord. Now there is not a single... Uh, that definition would not in any way offend or in any way not apply to what the Presbyterians are doing up here or what the Lutherans are doing down the street, or what the Pentecostalists are doing this morning. It fits right into it. There is not even the mention of the real presence, not even the mention of the sacrifice of the Mass, or of the sacramental and sacrificial role of the priest, nor of the value of the Mass apart from a congregation. Paul VI was called to task when the Missal came out for the fact that this was a heretical definition of the Mass. And he was so embarrassed by it that he suppressed the first edition of the Missal. It's very difficult to get, but I have seen it. The first edition of the Missal with this definition in it, and I have seen it with my own eyes. And 
he put out a quick, quickly a second edition, and the only change was that they had an orthodox definition of the Mass, a Catholic definition of the Mass. They changed nothing else, which means that these heretics who came together and believed this about the Mass were the very ones with that heretical spirit who put together the new Mass. So right from the get-go, as they say, the thing is heretical. Then there is the use of the vernacular. Obviously, if you believe in congregational worship, you have to have the vernacular. The church uses Latin because that is the living language of the church. It is her official language. It is the language of the priest. The church is essentially sacerdotal and priestly. So her sacred liturgy is, is conducted in the language of the priests, the language of the church. But if the people are the priests, then you must do it in their language. There is the suppression of the notion of sacrifice. The Catholic notion of the Mass is that it is a reenactment of the sacrifice of Calvary. Its purpose is to offer to God the Father the pure offering of His only begotten Son, both as a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving and as a sacrifice in reparation for sin. In the new Mass, by means of the suppression of many prayers and the addition of other prayers, this Catholic notion of sacrifice has been eliminated. It has been replaced with a notion of exchange of gifts, where we offer God bread and wine only, which are symbols of ourselves, and he takes our gifts and gives us back the Eucharist. We see this in the new offertory, the, the traditional offertory was virtually completely suppressed and a new one was cooked up using the prayers lifted from the Jewish Seder service. Get a copy, if, if you don't want to take my word for it, get a copy of the Jewish Seder service, what the Father is supposed to say on the Passover when they have their Seder meal and see if if it is not the very words that are used in the, in the New Mass. Very, very close. The New Mass says, Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have this bread to offer. Fruit of the earth and work of human hands, it will become for us the bread of life. And for the wine it says, uh, this wine to offer, fruit of the vine and work of human hands, it will become for us our spiritual drink. Now, it is a blasphemy to offer to God bread and wine. It's a blasphemy. Because anything that is not offered, anything less than the body and blood of his son, is a blasphemy. For once that sacrifice has been offered to God, anything less is cheap. And to say to God, well, we offer you ourselves, and this bread and wine is a symbol of ourselves, work of human hands, is a blasphemy. The church never had that idea. The, yes, the priest offers the bread and wine at Mass only in as much as it is going to be used for transubstantiation. It is not an offering to God in itself. To offer God bread and wine would be a terrible insult to him. It is a setting aside or a blessing of the bread and wine 
so that it may be used for transubstantiation. It is not giving him bread and wine. While there is an odd mention of sacrifice, the word sacrifice in the new mass, it is never clear what or who is being sacrificed, nor who is performing the sacrifice. This is done purposely so as to let the Protestant understand his notion of sacrifice, that is, that we sacrifice ourselves to God, of which the Eucharistic elements, the bread and wine, are mere symbols. Cranmer said that explicitly when he talked about the sacrifice of the Mass. He said, the sacrifice is the offering of ourselves. There is also the destruction of the notion of the real presence in the new Mass. In the general instruction at the beginning of the Missal, in which the heretical definition was contained, the real presence of Christ is mentioned only once. The word transubstantiation is not used, and that's significant because the Lutherans say they believe in the real presence, and so do the Anglicans. But their idea of real presence is merely a spiritual presence of Christ which coexists with the bread. Transubstantiation is an odious, dark word for the Protestant because it means that the bread ceases to exist and it is transformed into the body and blood of Christ. It is the substance of the body and blood of Christ. It was used by the Fourth Council of the Lateran and by Trent. It is Catholic dogma, and they hate it. Therefore, it's gone. The prayer in the offertory, which calls upon the Holy Ghost to descend and to perform the miracle of consecration, has been removed. All but three genuflections for the priest were removed. Now, in the traditional Mass, you can see the priest genuflect many times. He genuflects before he touches the Blessed Sacrament and when he recedes from the Blessed Sacrament. And it ends up to be many, many times that he genuflects. Anytime he goes near it, he goes near it or comes away from it, he genuflects. There's only three in the new mass only one at each consecration instead of the three at each consecration which you see the, rather the uh, two at each consecration that you see in the traditional mass and as well there are no kneelers in Novus Ordo churches they simply have benches to, to sit on the priest no no longer holds his fingers together in order to preserve the particles of the sacred host from being lost after he has touched the host. So now in the new mass you just open your hands like that. And there is no purification of the priest's fingers in the chalice so again as to preserve any loss of the tiniest particle. There is no purification of the sacred vessels. You see the priest purifying himself the vessels at mass now that's done by ladies in the sacristy who pour the contents down the sacrarium, which is a sink that goes into the ground, and then they take care of it after Mass. Something like doing the dishes. There is no more use of the pole, which is that linen card or linen, uh, uh, small linen thing that goes on top of the chalice uh, in order to preserve it from having flies getting in or dust and dirt no more use of that. 
there is no more gold required for chalices, and rather you can make them out of glass or clay, and some of them are so ugly and cheap that you would not use them to drink coffee out of. But yet they use them for what they, what they say is the body and blood of Christ. No more altar stones. In the traditional Mass, it, would, it is a mortal sin not to say Mass on an altar stone. That is to say, if you say it without an altar stone, you commit a mortal sin. In the new Mass, you say it on a table. The altar stone is consecrated by a bishop. It has martyrs, uh, the relics of martyrs inside. It is the sacred place upon which the altar of God is, uh, in which the, upon which the sacrifice of God is done. <clears throat> but no more. You say Mass on a table because it's the Lord's Supper. They no longer require the three cloths, which are symbolic of the cloths in which our Lord was wrapped after his death. And that's why, by the way, they have to be linen and not of synthetic material because they represent the cloths, the linen cloths in which our Lord was wrapped. <clears throat> they, the new Mass calls for sitting after communion. Now, this is supposedly the real presence. This is supposedly the body and blood of Christ. You come up, you stand for it, you receive it from the woman who, who is at the checkout counter during the week. She hands it to you, standing up, you put it in your mouth, and then you go and sit down. Now, is that the body and blood of Christ? Is that the real presence? Is that the divine presence as it is in heaven? Are we supposed to believe that when we see people act that way toward it? Of course not. That destroys, destroys belief in the real presence. And yet you see the traditional norms for adoration of the Blessed Eucharist. Even when the priest goes back to, to get another ciborium, the people kneel. Because when, when our Lord is, is exposed, when the, when the Blessed Sacrament is exposed, people kneel. Because it is our Lord Jesus Christ, as if we were here, like on the Sermon on the Mount, or if he were here as when he raised Lazarus, or in any other part of the Gospel, it is our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no more care for a host which falls. If you see a host fall here, you see the priest stops, he goes and gets a purificator, he places it over the place where it fell, and then he, and only he, must come out later and make sure that there are no particles, and he wipes the place with a, a wet purificator, and then he purifies those in a special way. <clears throat> no, now it just says, pick up the host in a reverent manner. And not even that is done, because hosts are found in pews, and people put them in their pockets and in their purses and things like that. Uh, <clears throat> there was a man in Helena, Montana, who told me this story. He was in the cathedral. He saw a host on the floor in the pew. And he went and told the priest after Mass, thinking the priest would be horrified to find out there was a host on the floor. The priest was not concerned about it. He goes over to the bishop's house, demands to talk to the bishop. And the bishop takes him aside and says, you know, we no longer believe in transubstantiation. So there the host sat. The, you have the distribution of the Eucharist by lay people. As I said, the lady who checked out your things in the grocery store a few days before is giving you communion on Sunday from a clay ciborium. 
communion in the hand, which was a Protestant invention in order to undo belief in the Holy Eucharist. And then the suppression of the Eucharistic fast, one hour of fast. Who eats every hour? It, it, it's, it's an absurdity. The purpose of the fast is to make you think about the Holy Eucharist, that I'm going to receive communion. I, I must think about this sacred act for one hour. There is the destruction of the altar. In the new liturgy, it is a table. It is in the form of a table. And some tables that you see in Novus Ordo churches are, again, so cheap and, and so ugly that you would not have them in your home. There is no more reservation of the Blessed Sacrament on the main altar, but at best it is over on the side in, in some sort of wall unit, or it is more commonly now put in some room in the back, a reservation room or something, and there are some very odd and weird treatments, we might say, of the, of the tabernacle or whatever box they put it in, or if they even put it in a box. Sometimes you just see it in a basket or, or something like that. And these churches are stripped now. They look like Protestant halls. And often they are filled with hideous crosses and other statues and decorations. I was told recently of a big crucifix in a church where our Lord, where you see our Lord from the backside. Yes. You don't see him frontwise, you see him backwards. He has his back to you and he's nailed backwards to the cross. It's hideous. Sick. The formula of consecration has been changed, which is the worst of all. In the new missal, the formula of consecration is not set off typographically as it is in the old missal. And that, you might say, is a small thing, but it isn't. If the priest says the words of consecration as a narrative, the way I would say it if I were reading to you from the pulpit the Gospel of the Last Supper, if he reads it merely as a narrative, it's invalid. If he's just recounting what our Lord did, it's invalid. And that's why the, in the old missal and in, even in your own hand missal, you see the words of consecration set out because the priest must bend down and, and mean and say, this is my body. This is the chalice of my blood. That this before me, this thing, is not bread, but it is the body of Christ. It is not wine, but it is the blood of Christ. But if he's just saying that as if he were play-acting or recounting or going through what our Lord did as if it were a representation or a narrative, it's invalid. It, it is not the Mass. It is invalid. They also changed the words of Christ from for many to for all. That's a blasphemy. It is a blasphemy to change the words of Christ as if we human beings could improve on Christ. He should have said this. This is what he should have said because many is exclusive and all is, is not exclusive. So this is better. That's a blasphemy. It's an insult to God. And furthermore, it renders the validity of the form dubious at best, at best dubious. 
Then there is the destruction of the role of the priest. Now he is a mere president who presides over the congregation which is carrying on the worship, in the same way that the vice president presides over the senate. The distinction of the priest and the people is suppressed by the by different wording of prayers and changes in gesture. Too many to go through in this sermon. But they have carefully broken down the distinction of priest and people. For example, the communion of the priest in the new mass is no different from that of the faithful. In the traditional mass, notice that the priest says his own Domine non sumdinos three times. And then he receives Holy Communion and uh, receives the first the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And then he takes care of the communion of the faithful. The confidior is again recited for the faithful. And then he turns around and says three times, Domine non sum dignos. Totally different. Why? Because his communion is essential to the Mass. Your communion is not essential. If there were no communions, it would still be the Mass. But if he did not receive communion, the Mass would be incomplete. Because, as in the Old Testament, the sacrifice must be consumed. And that's why they're separate. But in the New Mass, it's just meal time for all. Many of the vestments are suppressed, and now they are permitted to say Mass in an Alban stole, just like the Episcopalians and other Protestant groups. And they face the people and dialogue with them, because, again, the congregation is carrying on the worship. In the traditional Mass, it is the priest who carries on the worship and the people merely assist. Just like in the Old Testament, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer the sacrifice, the lamb, and then, and then sprinkle the altar with the blood of the lamb, an obvious prefiguration of Calvary and of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. But here, in the... In the uh, in the new mass, there is, uh, I should say rather, the people in the Old Testament would wait outside. They could not even see him. Could not even see him. They would wait outside, but they would be there with him by their consent, by their assistance at what he's doing. And so in the traditional mass, you are here consenting and assisting at the action of the priest. But not so in the new mass. You are the priests and the, and the priest or whatever, the president of the assembly as they call them, is merely overseeing what you do or directing you. Something like a, a, a director of an orchestra. Then the new mass incorporates an ecumenical notion of the church. References to the exclusivity of the church. For example, that the Catholic church is the one true church of Christ. Have been suppressed. In the old canon, for example, we pray for all orthodox believers who keep the Catholic and apostolic faith. Very clear. In the new mass, we pray for all those who seek you with a sincere heart. All those who worship snakes in Africa seek God with a sincere heart, according to John Paul II. That applies to them. They, in the snakes, are, are, are seeking God with a sincere heart. So they are included now. So the, the whole idea of the church and the sacrifice of the church, the faithful, is obliterated and it's all made 
fuzzy. For in their theology, everyone belongs to the Church of Christ. All who look with faith toward Jesus belong to the Church of Christ. And then you have ecumenical prayers. And by this I mean that the orations of the Mass, the oration after the Gloria, the secret prayer, and the post-communion have been ecumenized. That is, anything that is offensive to Protestants has been removed systematically removed such as references to hell judgment God's wrath punishment for sin references to the wickedness of sin as the greatest evil detachment from the world purgatory the souls of the departed Christ's kingship on earth the church militant references to the triumph of the Catholic faith or the evils of heresy, schism and error, the conversion of non-Catholics, the merits of the saints and miracles. All of these doctrines have been slit out systematically. And all you have to do is double column what is in the traditional missal and look at what they did to it in the new missal. And any of these doctrines, which are typically Catholic and which are also offensive to Protestants, have been suppressed. Now, all of this states that the New Mass is not merely a change in form, not merely a translation of the traditional Mass into English, but is a liturgy which is not Catholic. This is a description of it only in a nutshell in the amount of time that is allotted to a sermon. But this is a non-Catholic form of worship, and it means that it is an essential manner in which the Novus Ordo has defected from the Catholic faith. For the three essential qualities of religion are worship, doctrine, and discipline. And not only do these facts which I have brought forth attest to the substantial change in worship of the new Mass, but also the words of Cardinal Ottaviani attest to it. Cardinal Ottaviani was the head of the Holy Office and he wrote to Paul VI in 1969 these words, the Novus Ordo Mass, quote, represents both as a whole and in its details a striking departure from the Catholic theology of the Mass as it was formulated in Session 22 of the Council of Trent. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed, but more importantly, have found informative and beneficial this week's presentation of From the Pulpit. We will be on air to continue with the third part of this series one week from this evening at the same time and will continue to allow Bishop Sanborn to eloquently and forcefully explain to us the great break from Catholicism that was and is the Second Vatican Council. For more information on the work of Bishop Sanborn and of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, you may write to him at the following. The Most Reverend Donald J. Sanborn, 1000 Spring Lake Highway, Brooksville, Florida, 34602. Donations to the seminary are always welcome, needed, and appreciated. 
We at Restoration Radio would ask that if you find this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you would please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small or large it may be. You can do so by going to truerestoration.org and clicking the PayPal Donate button at the bottom of the page. To those of you who have donated, a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to leave us a message on our Twitter handle, at True Restoration, or you can contact us directly via email at truerestoration at gmail.com. Until next time, keep the faith. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.